1967 was truly a transformative year in the history of the United States. It was the summer of love in San Francisco and social unrest during the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. The Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Jimi Hendrix's debut album, Are You Experienced, hit the airwaves. The Green Bay Packers defeated the Kansas City Chiefs in what was to be known as the first Super Bowl. 1967 was also one of the most important years in the history of then Campbell College, now Campbell University. Cordell Wise joined his high school teammate Ken Faulkner on the Fighting Campbell basketball team on his way to becoming a two-time All-American. And Cordell Wise was also the first African-American student to enroll at Campbell. A South Jersey standout, Cordell led the Camels to 60 victories over his three seasons after transferring from Temple and was capped by a berth in the NAIA National Tournament. After graduation, his career path took him through playing basketball, teaching and coaching, working in an Atlantic City casino, finance, and then into the world of tennis, where he ran programs and taught for two decades. My name is Stan Cole, class of 1987, and this is our next installment of Tales from the Creek, where we visit with people who have made this place special over the years. I'm delighted today to be joined by Cordell Wise, Welcome to Tales from the Creek, Cordell, and thanks for taking the time to be with us. Well, Stan, thank you for having me. Cordell, I always start with this, but how did all this get started? What was it like growing up in South Jersey and coming up in the age of the, of the 60s? Well, as I had alluded to before, my parents uh, escaped from the Jim Crow South. Uh, my mother was from uh, the Chesapeake area. My father was from North Carolina. I don't even know where. And... Uh, uh, their life was built around survival at that time. My mother had five kids. Mm -hmm. uh, their father died in a car accident. My father came back from the Second World War, 1947, and ended up marrying my mother. I was born in 47. So I'm one of the ultimate baby boomers. And uh, what happened uh, at that point, uh, Riverside was a small, uh, one square mile blue collar town. and. Uh, uh, when I was maybe seven or eight, my father took me to this uh, the gymnasium and uh, said, see if you like this game. There was a guy that uh, ran pal basketball, and he taught all of us in ele from elementary school all the way up to junior high school. His name was Bob Vernon. Mm -hmm. We called him Pop Vernon. <laughs> the whole town, I mean, he was probably one of the greatest men I ever knew, and that's that's how I got into basketball. And uh, I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize I had, I had a little talent. And uh, as I grew older, it uh, started to come out. You've mentioned in the past and uh, in talking with some of your, um, your friends uh, growing up, you know, it was neighborhood. You, you had different places to play. Ken Faulkner and his brother or cousin were, uh, were friends with your, uh, with y'all and, um, you know, Riverside in the in the 60s, it seemed like you know, just was a great place where you had plenty of playmates to play and, and uh, with. Uh, well, Riverside was a, basically a basketball town. Mm -hmm. They had uh, won a – Bob Vernon, who went here when this mm -hmm. was a junior college, he went to Campbell as a junior college, transferred to Wake uh, – Duke, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Duke. And uh, his, his father is the one that – that taught, that's the connection his father taught us so so uh, as time went on uh, Bob would uh, as I was as I was growing up Bob would uh, 
enter into summer leagues and have me play on his team, you know, just to get some experience playing, and which was very helpful. And there are other there are other uh, people from Riverside that went here too. Uh, uh, Harry Johnston, Bernie Smith, uh, Sam Bishop. Yeah, I think uh, Kenny and Kenny Faulkner and I might have been the last uh, two Riversideans to play basketball here. Cordell, going back to when you were uh, coming up, who were some of your favorite players? Did you have anybody that you kind of patterned your game after? Uh, not to pattern my game, but I used to love to watch uh, the, the Boston Celtics. Uh, they um, they played a running style, even though pro basketball is a running game, but they ran better than anybody else. Uh, Bill Russell, Sam Jones, uh, Casey Jones, uh, Havlicek. <laughs> I mean, they were... They were the mainstays of the day. You mentioned Bob Vernon, uh, the uh, Bob Vernon that we know from here, his father who uh, introduced right. the game to you. Um, who are some of the other people that influenced you along the way uh, that helped you get where you are? Well, when I uh, first went to Temple, uh, well, my high school coach, uh, Doug Frambies, he admittedly he was not an athlete. He'd never played the game, but he, I, he was a – he was a good motivator, and uh, uh, because it was a basketball town, we all learned how to set pick and set a pick and roll, which is a lost art today. Kids set the pick, and they they don't even they don't even make contact. You know, when you when you come off a pick, you should come shoulder to shoulder, rubbing the man off. But now the guard just dribbles willy nilly wherever he wants, and uh, we learned to do it properly, uh, which helped me later on. And then uh, after. Uh, in high school, uh, I averaged 20 points and 20 rebounds a game. And a uh, guy had offers from, uh, you know, most of the schools in Philadelphia, a lot of schools in uh, North Jersey. Uh, I also played football. Uh, Joe Paterno offered me a scholarship. Uh, I was offered his uh, – Tubby Raymond at Delaware offered me a scholarship because I was a receiver. And, mm -hmm. you know, those were passing schools at that time. So, pursuant to that – Going to Temple, uh, Harry Litwack was the coach. Mm -hmm. He had me work for him during the summer in a summer camp. And, uh, you know, I did, I worked in the kitchen uh, as a dishwasher. I had to pull dishes out of, I had to pull dishes out of this dishwasher at 180 degrees. I mean, you had to do it quickly. <laughs> and I wanted to wear gloves to do it, but the other people that were experienced said, no, the gloves will just make it worse. You burn, burn your hands. So while I was there, Harry would take me uh, during my off period and and refine my shot. And he told me, he said, you got to shoot 500 shots a day. And being the idiot that I was, I followed his directions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's what I that's what I did. I you know I'd, I would go out and shoot until my arm cramped up, go back and rest, go back and shoot shoot again. And uh, it got to the point where. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't even at Campbell. I didn't miss very few. I missed very few open shots. I mean, the, the points that I averaged. You know, I was more into trying to melt the team to play together because, you know, after leaving Temple. Uh, just a side note: the team that I left at Temple ended up winning the NIT. If we had all stayed together, we could have done damage in the uh, NCAA's. And uh, when I was at Campbell. Uh, I only averaged about 14 shots a game. One game I took, I think, 19, but I shot 16 for 19. I had 41 points. 
So, which what was not my goal. I mean, I don't want to score 50, 60 points against Methodist and Pembroke, <laughs> UNC, <laughs> Greensboro. I mean, that was, that, that was pointless. In fact, I didn't even like playing those teams. I wanted, I wanted to get the real meat, you know. Absolutely. You mentioned the, the South Jersey connection to Campbell. How did you really uh, – did you become aware of Campbell from well, Bob I had Vernon? Well, I have known people. You know, Bob Vernon used to talk about it. And, you know, I had Harry Johnston and uh, Bernie Smith. Harry Johnston taught me anatomy and physiology in high school. Bernie Smith taught me history. And uh, when I was at Temple – I went to a high school game at Riverside, and at that point I was – I was waiting for my grades from, from Temple, and uh, they didn't turn out too well. And I told one of the told one of the teachers, and he told he told the you know the Campbell alums, and I get a call from Coach Fred McCall, and uh, I ended up catching a Trailways bus, <laughs> packed my bags, caught a Trailways bus, which stopped at uh, must have stopped at every stop on the East Coast to, to get down here, and. Uh, I get down to meet Coach McCall, and he tells me, he says, oh, you can be a big fish in a big fish in a little sea, which I wasn't even really worried about. Uh, my main worry at that time was Vietnam had started, mm-hmm. and they had a lottery system for the draft. My, my lottery number was 103. So I, I knew if I didn't keep a 2S status, I was going to be 1A and drafted. And uh, I got into Campbell, and, and that, that was it, you know. What are some of your best memories uh, from being down here at Cordell when, when you were here, your three years? Well, I was talking to the guys I played with, Johnny Marshbanks, uh, uh, Kenny Faulkner, Jim Wakis. It, we got better every year that we played. And Coach McCall uh, coached me for one year and a half a year, then he gave it to Dan- Danny Roberts. Mm-hmm. Now, in those days, we didn't know anything about a lot of – there were a lot of teams we played we didn't know anything about because there wasn't any computer, it wasn't any internet. You know, you couldn't trade films like they, you know, they did later or, or, or uh, DVDs. And uh, Coach Roberts was the only coach. He didn't even have an assistant. So, so we, had to, we had to learn by experience. And uh, my junior year, the first uh, – that was the first time we were eligible to play uh, for District 29 championship, mm-hmm. and we played Elizabeth City. And, uh, you know, I figured, well, this is our chance. Uh, you know, I had 33 points, and they beat us. The next year, it was like collectively a switch went on for all of us. We played them again in Fayetteville. We played a different game. We didn't try to run with them. I only had 19, but we beat them <laughs> and went to the national championship. Cordell, Cordell, the teams didn't play 35 games, 32 regular season games. No. The 20 wins was the gold standard for a college basketball team's success by measure of wins and losses. And your team won 60 over three years. Yeah. I can do that math with my um, comm degree. <laughs> um, what made those teams so successful, Cordell? Well, for one thing, we had uh, – uh, Accord, Jim Wakis, Ken Faulkner, Alan McRae, and myself, we had played together. We had played together for at least two years, and uh, you know we got to know uh, 
we got to know each other and we got to, as I said, we got to know other teams. And, uh, and my thing was uh, I got double teamed a lot, so basic math is there's only five people on the team, so if two people are on me, somebody's got to be open. And, uh, you know, so I, I did a good bit, good bit of passing. So not like today, you know, you see guys get double teams and they want to, you know, everybody wants to prove they can get in the NBA. But unfortunately, there's not enough room for everybody. Absolutely. Um, who are some of the best players you played with and played against? Well, in uh, basketball camp, uh, we had Pete Maravich. Uh, there was George Lehman that went here also. He went here when it was a junior college. Mm -hmm. He ended up going to Wake Forest afterwards. Uh, Van Willerford came from NC State. So we used to have two-on-two -two games, uh, me and George against Van Willerford and Pete Maravich. And, uh, you know, George and Pete really never got along, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, later it was Dickie Walker from Wake Forest. Mm -hmm. Then I used to work at basketball camp at uh, – basketball camp at Davidson. And uh, my junior year, uh, you know, I get to campus early and uh, couldn't find, I was in a dorm, I knew which dorm we were staying in, but I couldn't find the lights for the dorm. So I fell along the wall and I found this, uh, it was a TV room. Still couldn't find the lights, but I found out how to turn the TV on. And I'm sitting in this room and all of a sudden in the hallway, I hear clip, clop, clip, clop. And I don't know what's going on, whether somebody coming to check on me or what. And then there was a little bit of light in the doorway and it, all that light got blotted out. And a guy comes in and say, hey, how you doing, man? It was Dave Cowens. <laughs> Holy cow. <God. laughs> so, so we, yeah, we, uh, we became friends after that. And, uh, you know, we used to play one-on-one -on -one and then, I mean, he was 6'10", but he was proportioned like me. And he was as quick as me, so I couldn't really drive. To, I would have to, you know, those long shots, I would have to drive. I would have to back all the way up past the three-point line to make a, make a shot on him and make him come out. Because if I just drove from the top of the key, he was so quick he could catch me. And, uh, you, know, we had, you know, we had some good, we had some good games. And what a circle of life there. You grow up a, a fan of the of the Russell-led Lakers yeah. with Havlicek, and then Cowens wins the 74 exactly. championship exactly. with Havlicek, right? I mean – And to show you what a worker he was, uh, I mean, we – well, before I, I say that, we he, – he went home with me because they were ineligible. Florida State was ineligible because of recruiting violations. Mm -hmm. They could have won the NCAA, hands down. I mean, just because of him. And, uh, they, I mean, they, plus they had a lot of other talent. There was a mm -hmm. guy from East Orange, New Jersey, Kenny Macklin, that played for him. Mm -hmm. So he said, uh, can I ride home with you and you can take me to East Orange? And we went up there and played a game. Uh, his, his friend Kenny Macklin set up a game. There was seven-footers from North Jersey, New York. Dave was the only white guy on the court. I mean, he, he destroyed everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, he was <laughs> – he was unbelievable. And then when he went to the NBA, because he was actually an undersized center, he had to learn how to shoot a 15-foot jumper, which obviously everybody knows he did. And, Absolutely. And that's, that's, why, that's why the Celtics did what they did. And uh, when I was at Davidson, uh, guys from the western part of the state had heard about me. I got a, we got a call. I, this guy, Dave Kroll, that paid, played at Davidson, 
and uh, comes up to me one day and says, uh, somebody wants you to come play a pickup game. I said, who is it? He said, Bob McAdoo. So uh, I went over to a pickup game with Bob McAdoo, uh, Artist Gilmore, and, uh, and we, you know, we played for a couple of hours, and that was it. And then the last year I worked at Davidson, Charlie Scott was there. And, uh, you know, Charlie and I developed a pretty good relationship. Since 2008, Campbell's competed in a state-of-the-art 3,000-seat <coughs> arena. Mm -hmm. uh, we just watched a game there uh, this afternoon. But Carter Gym was the home for Campbell basketball for 55 years before that. And uh, your home for, yeah. uh, for your home court. Um, tell us what that that building was like on game night and not on game night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not on game night. Obviously, we practiced. Uh, Sometimes uh, Coach McCall would, you know, it's all, you know, recruiting wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. No computers, and Coach McCall would find out about some players. We'd have practice. He would have us go eat at Marsh Banks Cafeteria, and then come back and play again with these recruits. <laughs> Which I guess, in a way, was good because it was getting us in better shape. But. Uh, uh, during game nights, the place was pretty electric. I mean, it only set barely a thousand, and uh, we packed it every night. So, you know, it was uh, it was uh, like you said, my second home, and uh, we worked in basketball camp there. Before every summer, before basketball camp, they had this the parquet floor. You know, the mm -hmm. blocks like this, like like they used to have in the Boston Garden. Right. It got so hot that the parquet floor would buckle up. <laughs> And they had to take it down. They had to take it up and redo it every every summer. And by basketball camp, it was done. But you know, and uh, be, because when I first got down here, Coach McCall had me shoot in the gym, and he, he was telling me how great my technique was. So you know, which I didn't pay attention to. I just said, uh, yeah, I, well, I worked on it. You know, I, I know mm -hmm. I'm a good shooter. So he, George Lehman, who was probably one of the greatest shooters ever to play the game. He, he and I taught shooting in Carter Gym. That's, that's the only gym I ever taught in during basketball camp was Carter. And George's um, uh, a relationship with the Campbell Basketball School lasted for decades oh, yeah, yeah. And, was, uh, yeah. and, and came through here. And then Austin, his brother, Austin, his brother came, yeah. came through as well. And, uh, and that, that was the one thing that we've, we've talked about through the years with people discussing the basketball school was it really – was something that really focused on fundamentals wherever whatever station you yeah. were, whether it was defensive slides or, or your shooting release or passing. Uh, kids weren't just going to be babysat. They were having, no, going yeah. to have fun, but they were coming to learn. They had to work. They had to work. And, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, George would be at one end, I'd be at the other. And uh, the kids would rotate. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, was a, it was an enjoyable experience. You know, you got to meet kids from – Elementary all the way up to high school. So and, and funny you mentioned that about fundamentals. When I met Cowens, I told you I learned how to come off a pick. Mm -hmm. Cowens obviously had this, he had the same training, but he was 6'10", 6'10", 250 pounds. So the first time we played in a counselor game at Davidson, he and I were playing together. I throw him the ball, I go off a pick, and I'm figuring I'm going to have to do some more dribbling, right? 
I go off to pick, and it was quiet. I'm looking here and looking here. Nobody. <laughs> he waked <he> my man. <laughs> so I just, had, I just had a summer just shooting open gym shots. <laughs> the the uh, immovable object, absolutely, yeah. that you ran your man into. Yeah. Cordell, it's well documented. All American honors and and basketball at Campbell, the success the team here ha had. Um, but you also competed in the NAIA National Track and Field Championship. I'd love for you to share with our, our listeners about how your college track career got started. Well, that, that wasn't. A, I didn't have any intention of running track. Uh, um, my, uh, I guess it was my sophomore year. They had a, a, a flag football league was started. And as I told you, I was a receiver in high school. I was pretty fast. So I, the first team we played, this guy that was playing with me, I never, never met him, but he could throw passes. So, you know, I'm running, catching. I must have had like three or four touchdowns. So one, um, one touchdown I'm running for is it, uh, one of the teachers is going by Cliff Hood. He calls me over and says, <laughs> says, uh, did you ever run track? I said, yeah, I ran 102. 220 in high school, which was which it was in not, mm -hmm. not meters, 100 yard dash, 220 yard dash. So he said, I need a sprinter. <laughs> I said, well, I'll come out, but I don't know if I'm going to come to practice too much. He said, that's all right. I just need somebody to sprint. <laughs> so, so I, I actually pretty, I guess I pretty much got into shape in the in the in the meets, because I would run 100, 220, and then a leg on the quarter mile and you know I I had learned to run the quarter mile in in high school and I, how to pace myself with it so without training I ran a 9800 uh 20 20.8 220 which was the second fastest time in in the nation uh, in my senior year in uh in NAI and then I ran about a 48 400, 440 so um, most of our coaches now who might be listening to that will not uh, agree to having somebody come to the, <laughs> to the uh, team and only uh, competing in the events and not, not having to practice. But, you know, sometimes talent, uh, you can't teach that yeah, either. As I said, that was, you know, that was not my reason for coming to Campbell to run track. <laughs> Absolutely. Cordell, you mentioned meeting uh, Charlie Scott um, at, uh, at Davidson and developing a friendship with him. Um, you and Charles are certainly notable names uh, in this state and in this region as pioneer players at your schools. Uh, Charles at University of North Carolina, you here at Campbell. Um, what kind of significance is that to you as being well, the first one? Uh, as I told you, I, my main objective was to stay out of the draft. Uh, and when I came to Campbell, uh, I was a little bit apprehensive, uh, but nothing ever happened on this campus uh, racially. And uh, as I told, uh, I was speaking earlier with Johnny Marshbanks, who I played with, mm -hmm. and uh, he was very accepting, accepting of me, as was the whole team. And, uh, you know, John Kennedy uh, stated, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I think collectively what happened that experience at Campbell, with all of us, that I think that advanced the country exponentially. 
And I can share for sure um, a, a man that came along a few years after you, Sam Staggers. You finished in 1970. Sam got arrived in 1973, and Sam shared the fact that he never ran into any problems here right. and I promise you Cordell that has to do with the fact that you and your teammates and, and your classmates set that standard and it became the norm yeah. to what we have now the most diverse campus we have ever had exactly. at Campbell and 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 we're grateful for that and as, as, a, as an addendum to that uh, we we played uh, Catawba and I we some of the guys from Catawba work at camp mm -hmm. uh, one guy most notably Garland Davis mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was rumored that, that Salisbury was had a, a lot of Klan activity. Garland Davis, the first night he slept in the dorm at Catawba, they burned a cross on his lawn. Nothing like that ever happened to Campbell, mm -hmm. and I can probably attribute that to uh, the presence of uh, Mr. Fred McCall, because uh, you know he he would I don't he he he's the type of individual that wouldn't put up with anything like that. Our guest on Tales from the Creek is Cordell Wise, class of 1970, basketball All-American and Campbell Hall of Fame member. Cordell, we're going to turn the page here. You have a deep love of music, <laughs> and I want to, you to share that with, with me and your listeners. Growing up in the 1960s, was there a better time um, to experience an incredibly diverse and creative time in the music industry? Um, tell us about what that was like and how you developed your love. Well, when I was younger and in high school, uh, a family moved in next door to me. They had 10 kids, and they used to, uh, they moved in when I was 12. And they, at one time, they said, uh, I guess I must have been 13 after a house was built. And they said, they invited me to a party. And they would play Motown and dance and everything. And I got used to, you know, everybody was into Motown back sure. then. And, uh, when I came to Campbell, I met a guy, Michael Ferguson. He was uh, actually from New Jersey also. He was only from a town five miles from me, Pensalkin, New Jersey. And uh, he introduced me to uh, uh, what was then known as psychedelic music. Mm -hmm. But uh, listened to Jimi Hendrix, uh, The Doors. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was different music, and it was also... The music was more enchanting than the music that was played before then. And musician-wise, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of people that were musicians were, I mean, if you really listen to it, it had the basis of uh, rhythm and blues, had the basis of jazz, and formed what now is called rock. And you shared with me earlier that you've seen Led Zeppelin yeah. in, in concert in the in the late '60s. Um, you know, half of that group is no longer with us. What was that like when you went, went to see Zeppelin? Yeah, that, well, that was, uh, on the bill was Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, and Sly and the Family Stone. Sly, for some unknown reason, didn't show up, <laughs> for which, <laughs> which he was known for. But uh, it was in what's called the Spectrum in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and it was on a circular stage, and the stage rotated. And, uh, you know, we were just... Uh, we were all just there with our mouths open the whole time. <laughs> that was, you know, was, that's when they became known as the super groups. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they were, they were certainly one of those at that time. All right, a quick little Q&A here. Best Led Zeppelin song for you? Uh, I've been dazed and confused for so long, isn't that so? 
One other woman never bargained for you. <laughs> Lots of people talking, few of them know. Soul of a woman was created below. <laughs> okay, I've got my coworker, Jason Williams, is a big guitar guy. Mm -hmm. um, and we shared a, a text thread last night that he says that When the Levee Breaks is a perfect song. Yeah. Um, and so we... Uh, uh, we had that back and forth. Uh, I will. I'll just chime in. I really love Houses of the Holy album, and yeah. uh, the Rain song is very deep. Uh, means a whole lot to me. Uh, Hendrix, what what ma well, matters most? Well, first to you about of all, the, yes. With Zeppelin, you guys came along later. Right. I was. You know, the first album, mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin, was a bluesier album, which, Absolutely. which they copied a lot of the blues artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from the past, and. Uh, but Hendrix, uh, musically, I mean, uh, it was uh, when I heard Purple Haze, it was like, you know, how's he doing? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, as time went on, the, you know, he was proved to be uh, one of the greatest guitarists ever. Yeah. I understand that you traveled to Woodstock in the summer of 1969. Yeah. Um, tell me about that trip. If yeah, you that was in... In between Davidson basketball camp, and then, you know, I told Dave Cowens about it when we, we, you know, you had to go in in July to a session and another session in August, and Woodstock was in August of '69, and uh, and uh, I went with the individual that you met earlier today, my friend Cliff McGlotton. He was home from the army. He was stationed in Germany, and we were just sitting listening to a radio with two other guys from the neighborhood, and. Uh, it was a station out of Philadelphia, WIBG, not WMMR, and they talked about this festival in uh, this festival in in New York, and we were sitting in my mother's car, and I said, "Well, I'm going to go home and ask if I can take <laughs> we can try," <laughs> which we did, which we did, and we rode up and uh, we rode up, and it was just wall to wall traffic, and. Uh, we uh, slept in somebody's yard. People were just pulling over into people's yards. We slept in the car overnight in somebody's yard. And the next day we found out, you know, it was so crowded they weren't letting any more people. We could hear the bass from the, uh, from the concert, but we didn't get to see any music. You know, saw a baby being born out in a tent on the side of the road, you know. But <laughs> that was, and uh, there was a car going out. You had to go back to the New York Thruway going out, there was a car in front of us, and people were hanging off of this car, and, and uh, this woman is hitching, so we stopped to pick her up. She, she was from Manhattan. And we said, what's going on with that car? She said, uh, that guy has a duffel bag of marijuana. And people were <laughs> they were trying to get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they were buying it from him. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we said, oh, okay. We just, we just proceeded out of there and you know, took her home, and that was it. Cordell, after you graduated, um, you were drafted by the Carolina Cougars in the ABA. Tell us a little bit about that experience in that time. Yeah, well, as I told you, I was from a small town in New Jersey. Uh, I knew nothing about business, uh, especially basketball as a business. I played because I loved the game. And uh, I had uh, uh, honed my skills to the point where, you know, if, if you didn't put two people on me, you know, I was, I'm going to score. And uh, we had a, we had a, Bones McKinney and Jerry Steele, who mm -hmm. had coached at High Point, 
where the coach is Bones McKinney, coach at Wake Forest. He had, you know, he was a very well-known coach. Mm -hmm. And I was working for the Cougars during the summer. Uh, they had a, a van with a basket on it, and you would take it into different neighborhoods and do do drills and exhibitions. And you know, I was working with uh, Jerry Kroll from Davidson, mm -hmm. and uh, then later another guy from uh, New Jersey. But uh, they called us in one day because they wanted us to play against some of the veterans in the in a Y in Raleigh. And one of the veterans was uh, George Wilson. I don't know if you remember who he was. Uh, Cincinnati Bearcats, George Wilson and Ron Thacker. Mm -hmm. They had won uh, two NCAA championships in a row and played Loyola Chicago, I believe, in 1961. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a triple overtime game. Uh, Les Hunter from Loyola tapped in the winning, winning uh, shot. George Wilson was one of the guys that was playing, and he comes up to me and says, uh, "You're definitely going to make it. Nobody can do what you can do." Uh, which at the time I didn't, you know, I didn't know what, I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So we come into camp. You know, I blow through rookie camp. The veterans come in, and uh, uh, Bones McKenney and Jerry Steele call each of us into a room individually. And like I said, I know nothing about business and. Bone said to me, he says, oh, we don't believe players go stale. And I said, okay. <laughs> and what he was alluding to was, you know, I had had, I had a couple bad days because they had us doing push-ups, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not the thing you want to do in the middle of camp. You, do, you, you lift in the off-season. <laughs> right. You're not going to get in shape in two days by doing push-ups. So I didn't know what he was talking about. He figured, you know, I wasn't playing – the way I played before because I wanted, wanted more money. I knew nothing about negotiating a contract <laughs> or anything. So, I, you know, I'm just shaking my head and I leave, leave that meeting. So we start exhibition season and uh, we go, I forget where we played, but Bob, Bob Berger was, you know, he, he had showed up. Uh, George Lehman, who had gone here, he showed mm -hmm. up. And I'm playing Bob Berger. His first two shots, I blocked through into the stands. And the next day, I was gone. I was cut. So, <laughs> it yeah. is a business. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a business. That's right. Cordell, you went on to play in the Eastern Basketball League, and yeah. people of a certain age, myself included, remember just how incredible that league was at that time. Share with us a little bit about that. Uh, people don't don't know because there was there was not cable TV. There wasn't no, no. Uh, wasn't coverage outside of of the area. Yeah, there were, you know. As everybody knows, there's not room in the NBA for everybody. So, but there are, you know, there's still players that, that play. And, you know, they had a league in the Midwest, which, and uh, the Eastern League had had a lot of a lot of players that played for major schools and uh, were playing. It was called semi-pro basketball because mm -hmm. you, you would play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sometimes just Saturday and Sunday, and it was a uh, it was a rough and tumble league. I mean, you know. Uh, one one guy uh, I went to a tryout in Hazleton one time, and uh, this guy, I think he had played for uh, some university near there, some Division two university, and he comes out and he's trying all these things. And this one guy, Kenny Wilburn, who had played uh, for Wilberforce, you know, we're on the foul line. 
some a guy shooting a foul shot, and Kenny leans over to this guy and says, "What do you think you're doing out here? Don't you know there's grown men out?" There? <laughs> 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 you didn't, yeah, you didn't. I mean, there's no secret who the baddest guy, who baddest cat in the jungle was. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were guys that were extremely strong. And, uh, Cordell, your professional journey has taken you to teaching and coaching the world of finance, Atlantic City casinos, and the sport of tennis. Tell us, share a little bit about a few of the stops along the way. Yeah, well, I think as I told you in the, in the casino, I was a uh, I was a John Updike character in a Dashiell Hammett novel. You know, I, I did not fit in whatsoever. I mean, it was it was a lot of uh, you had to you had to fill out about a fifty-page uh, questionnaire to get your casino license, and you weren't supposed to have any uh, any criminal background. But I, I don't think I was true. <laughs> so, so I lasted here for three years, and. Uh, you know, I went back, I subbed for a little bit, and uh, I ended up uh, I ended up going going to Hilton Head, and, to, and I, I took a couple of tennis drills, and I meet this guy, he worked for this company uh, called Edward Jones, mm -hmm. and he, he told me about the company, and uh, I ended up uh, applying, and, uh, well, no, well, first, first, before that, I worked for a penny stock firm, mm -hmm. and they were just rip-off artists. I had gotten my uh, Series 7 license. A Series 7 is a six-hour test, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's an extremely hard test. I mean, you, know, you have to learn about options and everything. And uh, worked for them for a while. And uh, then I was in, went to Hilton, that's right, and I met this guy. He tells me about this company. Now, I already had my license, so I called up Edward Jones, they scheduled an interview, hired me on the spot. Edward Jones sets up one broker offices. What it's uh, it's just the broker, and they give you a secretary, but they call her a branch office. It can be a he or her. Mm -hmm. Call them a branch office administrator. So I did that uh, for approximately five or six years, and uh, and uh, realized that uh, I would have retirement coming up soon. So I. I had money in my teacher's pension annuity fund. And I went back into teaching, and right now I have a full medical, full dental, and, and a pension. So, tell us which about came from my Campbell degree. Absolutely, so. <laughs> full circle again, right? Yeah. Cordell, tell us about how you go from basketball standout, uh, part-time track national participant, um, broker, and then you get involved in the sport of tennis. Yeah, well, when I was playing in the Eastern League, there was a family in this town, uh, Willingboro. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know if you know anything about Levitt communities, but there's Levittown, New York. Mm -hmm. And Willingboro used to be called Levittown, but to not get confused with Levittown, New York, they changed the name. And there was a, a retired officer, uh, Air Force officer in, in town. I had met him through a guy I had gone to Temple with. He, he went with his, his daughter. So they had a son. He was, uh, he was. Uh, I guess you could say he was a prodigy. I mean, he picked mm -hmm. up things. I mean, this kid could throw the football seventy yards. He 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 swam. They had they had local swim teams. There were ten parks. He swam for his park and beat everybody. Uh, the kid was phenomenal. So once 
you know, I used to go to the house a lot, and he, he told me he started playing tennis. So it started in September, and the, the high school team went indoors and practiced. And, you know, he had to learn how to hit the ball, which is not an easy thing in tennis. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I told you I did 500 times a day in basketball. You have to do the same thing in tennis. And uh, he ends up from September to the time – the boys' season starts in April. He ends up being the number one player on the team. <laughs> you know, so he taught me how to hit a tennis ball. And he told me, he said, don't play, because if you start playing, you're just going to bat the ball back and forth. You're just going to try to win points. You're not going to learn it. And you meet people that can hit the ball, it's not going to work. So he made me, you know, learn how to hit it. You know, it took me like maybe three weeks to learn how to hit a backhand properly and, and a forehand. And uh, after that, I started uh, taking a couple courses. I, you know, I ended up taking the USPTA, USPTA, U.S. Tennis Professional Association uh, test, and I, you know, I became certified. And uh, I ran the courts in Willingboro for about 10 years. So a lot of people uh, probably think that tennis pro, golf pro, a glamour job, uh, you go in and uh, whenever you want to. Uh, what, what does the average person really not know about <laughs> what, what, what being a tennis pro well, is? You know, tennis pro, uh, I worked at Sea Pines most recently with Stan Smith. And Stan Smith runs the Stan Smith Academy out there. Mm -hmm. But I worked with the, the uh, in fact, the, the young guy that ran it that was the head pro, um, O'Keefe. Uh, he played for Coastal Carolina. He, mm -hmm. he played against Campbell when, when they were still in the same league. And uh, in 90-degree weather, 100-degree weather, doesn't matter. you got to be out there. And you might be out there for three and a half, four or five hours. And uh, it's, uh, it gets to be pretty grueling. But uh, the great part of it is you meet, meet a lot of uh, different people and uh, – I had a serendipitous encounter with a lady. She was from Raleigh. And, uh, you know, afterwards, you know how you talk to people, where are you from? She said, I'm from Raleigh. I said, oh, I went to, I went to Campbell University. I, I graduated from Campbell. She said, I work with one of Coach McCall's daughters. <laughs> and that, there again, circle comes around again, you know. It's a small, small world. I try to tell people that uh, about Campbell, and, but uh, you know, and, and it might be just because I've been here a long time. But it's amazing how many people you work, and then you know, it is a smaller world that we live in. Yes. Travel, uh, the internet, electronic communication, you know, air flight, uh, interstates. We can go on. Cordell, how's how's coaching an individual sport like tennis different from coaching a team sport like basketball? Well, that's, a, that's a good question, and you said it yourself, Stan. Individual. It's an individual sport. Uh, most of the pro tennis players you see are pampered. They have to be. But uh, uh, basketball is a basketball is a game where you have to be uh, part coach, part psychologist, part part parent. You know, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a different uh, dynamic because you may have 14 people on the basketball team, and uh, you know, I coached it. Uh, one of the first places I coached at was uh, while well, I was playing on the Eastern League team in Trenton, New Jersey. So I started teaching in Trenton, and I was became the JV assistant varsity coach. Now we were ranked in the top five in the state every year, and uh, you know, so you had a pretty good pick of talent. But 
from the top kid to the bottom kid. I made a kid run a play 60 times one day. And, you know, I'd substitute different kids in and out. But it seemed like it was punishment. But, no, what, what, what happened is that solidified in their brain. Uh, behavioral, behavioral science question. How many days does it take to develop a habit? Isn't it 14? No. No. 30 days. Oh, wow. Proven fact. If you can force yourself to do something for 30 days, you have put your brain on automatic pilot. And that's the converse is true, too, because you can go the other way and do something wrong for 30 days. Now you've, now you've got a bad habit that you've got to spend 30 days trying to break. So, you know, it's uh, – and as I said, in, in a team sport like basketball, everybody has to – Everybody from – I don't care if you're a bench sitter. I used to tell my kids, you don't know what's going to happen during the season. Somebody may get hurt. That's your chance. Somebody may, somebody may get sick. But you have to know what they know if you want to play. And if you don't, you know – and plus, when things happen in the game, you had to do quick discipline. You don't – you know, I see coaches today, kids mess up. The coach just said, oh, well, he just messed up. He just meant, no, no, take him out now, tell him what he did, and then put him back in. Because if you let him keep doing that, that 30 days is going to end up mounting, and he's going to keep doing the same thing. <laughs> I mean, that's just my opinion, but I may be wrong. But <laughs> It sounds like a scientific fact to me. Um, Cordell played with McAdoo and Cowens and Charlie Scott, uh, you know, incredible names uh, in basketball. And you worked with an all-time great with Stan Smith, a you know, two-time major winner and a world number one. What, what's Stan Smith like? Stan, Stan's one of the, he's probably one of the most humble men you want to meet. And uh, uh, he's low-key. And he, uh, he, him and his wife, they go to uh, Wimbledon every year at the French Open, you know, which is his right because that's, uh, that's where he made his living. But uh, he is – he is one of the greatest people you ever want to meet. I mean, he, sometimes he would be walking by if I'm teaching a group, and he'd say, oh, that's Stan Smith. I'd say, Stan, you have a minute. You come and he'd come over, and he'd talk to him. You know, and and uh, a funny uh, little anecdote, we took a, there's a picture online of when, when I uh, was working there. At, you know, it was a, the brochure for that year, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody had to wear the same hat, same shirt. And you had to carry your racket. And Stan, Stan is telling us, all right, everybody, hold your racket like you're a champion. I said, Stan, wait a minute. You're the only one here that's ever won a major tournament. You tell us. Yeah, right. Cordell, you came back to Campbell last fall when your graduating uh, class was celebrating its golden anniversary, which was delayed because of the COVID pandemic. What was it like being back that on campus great. in Bowie's Creek? Ended up meeting uh, a couple people who I had forgotten about, and uh, we we all remembered each other and re remembered uh, things that happened on campus, and uh, we reminisced about how the circle used to be there, <laughs> and how we had to go to chapel, <laughs> and it, you know you had to go to chapel a certain amount of times a week, and attendance was taken, and, you know, you didn't, you got the demerits, so. That was, a, yeah, it was a memorable time. Earlier today, you joined your former teammates, Ken Faulkner and Johnny Marshbanks, uh, being enshrined in the Campbell Athletics Hall of Fame. What does that mean to you, Cordell? Well, 
It was like most of the Hall of Fame recipients said, this is not something that we did, that we did to get into the Hall of Fame or to get recognition. We did. We played our sport because we loved the sport. But the fact that Campbell was uh, took the time to honor me is, uh, you know, that's that's deeply felt by me. I mean, it's, you know, it's uh, I as I said, my high school coach said used to tell us before each game, what I gave I have, what I kept I lost, and I I think I put out some things for Campbell and I put out some effort for Campbell and. It's good that Campbell recognizes the effort that I, I put out. Finally, Cordell, um, tell us what Campbell and the Bowie's Creek community mean to you. Well, as I said, when I came down here, I didn't know what to expect. And uh, I met some of the finest people I met. I mean, in a lot of ways, the South gets a bad rap. Uh, and I don't even know if Kenny Faulkner knows this, uh, but in, in the town, See, Kenny lived in a section called Delanco. There was a, a, a creek dividing Delanco from Riverside proper. But in Riverside, there was a diner called the Princess Diner. And when I was younger, I remember people talking about it. Blacks were not allowed in that diner. And that was far from being the South. And so that was, uh, and people used to tell me, oh, you went to a school down in the South? How did you do that? I said, well, I said, in the South, if people don't want you around, they will tell you. <laughs> you know, they're not going to smile in your face. If they don't want you there in those days, you know, they would tell you, you know, don't come in here. Or we don't serve, you know, such and such, you know, the, the N-word. But that never, uh, as I said, nothing like that ever happened on campus. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I've never heard of anything like that happening on, the, on Campbell University's campus. I'm Stan Cole, and our guest today on Tales from the Creek has been Cordell Wise. Thank you, Cordell, for taking time to share your Tales from the Creek. Thank you, Stan, for having me.